Hello, good evening, good morning, whatever it is for you. Now, I wouldn't get too excited. We didn't solve the Lindsay Buziak case. That's not the update that the title would suggest. Interestingly, just after the Lindsay Buziak story was released on Monday, which was just yesterday, I got a message from one of my most loyal listeners, Trish, um, telling me kind of as a side note that Lindsay's story had also just been done by The Trail Went Cold. And I usually like to listen to other people's pod, like other podcasts that have done a story that I've covered after mine, just to see if they've got any different information um, than what I was able to dig up. And while looking up the episode, which I actually haven't found yet, I haven't listened to it yet. But when I was looking for it, I discovered that literally just last week, Capital Daily did an eight-part episode on the case. Now, Capital Daily, as you might remember, is the news source that actually went to court to get the investigation documents. So when I saw that, initially, to be honest, I kind of freaked out a little bit because what if I got something wrong in my coverage? Now, to be considered, there's a lot of talk these days about ethical uh, true crime. Uh, You might have heard about it To be a true ethical podcast, you have to reach out to families to get permission to review or to tell the story. Now, most podcasters, including the really big ones, don't do that. Um, They might reach out to the families uh, occasionally, but it's usually to ask if they want to participate, not necessarily for permission. They're kind of like, we're we're doing this story. Do you want to participate? So I'm actually okay with not being on the extremely short list of truly ethical true crime podcasts. In fact, I don't think I can even name one that's on that list. But having said that, and being that I've experienced being a family member of a victim myself, I know how important the facts are. Do not get anything wrong and pronounce everything right, which is a (laughs) very tall order for someone who is admittedly not a professional anything and can't pronounce even simple words and names half the time. And during my delve into trying to be ethical, I've discovered a couple things about true crime podcasters. We are essentially storytellers, not investigators, and even investigative journalists are not police investigators. They aren't experts on forensics or forensic psychology. So even the big podcasts that get these exclusive interviews and take the time and the money uh, and spend the money to get copies of court transcripts, 911 calls, interrogation tapes, they are still just relaying information provided by others. So when they do a cold case, everything is a theory and hearsay like everything. And that is because even when a case is cold, it's still an open case and still under investigation, like until almost, like almost forever, at least in our lifetimes. And because of that, the police release to the media next to nothing. The only things they will reveal is small facts that are more likely to help than hinder solving a case, like maybe the description of a car or details about the last place a person was seen but not the cause of death or any real details. So what journalists and podcasts alike do will do is dig up potential witnesses, neighbors, friends, etc., and interview them. And this makes for good listening, but it's theory. There is also the issue of leaked information, which there is no way to verify that information is truthful. And I have seen time and time again when something is leaked, and then it turns out it's not true. So although I truly respect podcasters that delve into cold cases, the witnesses that they interview are not testifying. They are giving their recollection and opinions that might or might not be admissible in court later. Cold cases are generally solved by advances in science and by changes in relationships. That's like someone coming forward after a falling out with someone. They aren't usually solved by podcasters or TV reporters. 
I'm just saying. So having said all that, in this update, I'm just, I'm only going to go through the details that I reported on from the information I found that was wrong according to the investigation files. I'm not going to go through all the people they interviewed that say this or that. It's an interesting podcast, worth a listen, so I'm not going to regurgitate their interviews and theories. I'm actually surprised at the interest out there on Lindsay's case, and not just here in Canada, but everywhere. And I have to give myself a little bit of a pat on the back, that I didn't make too many mistakes, which I'll go through in a minute, and I also didn't get sucked into the vortex of misinformation and bold-faced untruths that are out there. The podcast, which is called Murder on the Island, is, is very well done and, as I said, worth a listen, particularly the eighth and final episode. Capital Daily did get a number of exclusive interviews with Shirley, Shirley, Jason, Lindsay's best friend Vicky, and her sister Sarah. And as I said, it is worth a listen to find out more about a lot of the conjecture and speculation and suspicion that's around this case and how it all came to be. But I'm not going to go into their coverage too much. I just wanted to clear up the couple of boo-boos that I made. The first one being that it's Shirley and Jason Zalo, not Zalio. Get it together, Kim. It's even pronounced how it's spelled. Not really sure how I made that mistake. Uh, second one is that Shirley Zalo did, did not, in fact, introduce Lindsay to Jason. She actually met her after they were already dating. The third was that Lindsay was actually the one that was planning the bachelorette party that she was supposed to go to the night she was murdered. Um, so she wasn't going to just be a guest. And that party was going to be in Vancouver, not Vic Victoria. So she would have had to fly there that night to get there. Now, this isn't really a mistake. It's just some extra information about that little bit. The phone number that um, Lindsay had asked her coworker to look up um, to do like a cross-reference and trying to track it down. She wasn't asking her to like trace the number. She she was asking to look in the Remax files and see if that number had ever come up before, like if they were a past Remax client. Um, and then in January 2020, the police provided an update that they were working with the FBI and RCMP and had some new leads and were looking at forensic evidence, testing and retesting that evidence, including some digital evidence. And again, this wasn't a mistake I made. I just didn't go into detail about what it was that they were doing on the case. And lastly, it was the side door that Jason and Cohen saw was open, not the back door. And one thing I will say that was in the investigation files, but I didn't go into too much detail about, was that the bedroom that Lindsay was found on was at the very top of the staircase. Now, I did mention that, but a lot has been conjectured about how Jason knew, like, to head right up the stairs and go find her right away in that bedroom. And the truth is, you could see into the bedroom doorway as you were walking up the stairs. Um, so any, it would have been, as soon as you started up the stairs, you would have automatically seen her in the doorway of that bedroom. She was pretty easy to spot. Capital Daily did try talking to the investigators that were working on the file, but they were denied access to that. They said that they will not and cannot comment on anything. So you can see my point about investigation files being closed and ripe for theories and conjecture. The court case that allowed them to access the files, the information that they did get released was fairly heavily redacted, and it was 1,600 pages in length. And even the number of stab wounds isn't found anywhere in those files, and yet it was reported on really widely, and the numbers varied from five stab wounds to 54 furthering my point that leaked information is not really information. 
I also found out that I'm very happy that I tried to weed through misinformation from actual information because the details that kept getting reported on that somebody said this or that have all been disputed and denied and even some big time podcasters and reporters got things very wrong. I personally, I love details. I love, I love details, but I don't like fluff filler. Like for example, quite recently, Coffeehouse Crime did a piece on Taylor Sean and Alan's story and they filled in details that never happened. Mostly, I think it was to appear that they were closer to the case than they really are. There were some details like um, David, Dustin's stepbrother, was trying to get a hold of Dustin to go for coffee the week of Taylor's murder And Taylor's mom was working with Sean. Taylor's mom, Joanne, was working with Sean trying to find Taylor. None of that was actually true. It's just fluff filler. Um, And we were actually pretty offended by some of the things that they got wrong. Like, it was kind of like they couldn't be bothered to read the documents properly. And they kind of added in details that are insignificant enough to make the story just accurate enough to make the point, but kind of adds in, I guess, drama and suspense. And I often think about that when I hear a podcast talking about something that the victim thought or did just before they were murdered. We can't know that. The person is dead. So telling an audience that, you know, this person had a feeling that something was wrong and timidly opened the door is conjecture. It paints a picture. It might be true, but we can't really know it. And with that, forgive me for my little missteps, and I hope that you see the integrity with which I really try and operate this podcast with. I'm back on Monday with a new episode, and as always, thank you for listening.